Psalm number 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. All right, our uh, sermon today, as I said, it's in Exodus 6. It's verses 14 through 30, and uh, it's entitled The Family of Moses and Aaron. And what we have here is a sudden break from the narrative. And then as soon as the... uh, the uh, genealogy is over, it goes back to the narrative. And you have to ask yourself, why was this inserted here? Liberal scholars have tried to tear this apart. They've tried to say that it was, you know, not, it was just some later insertion. It wasn't a wise choice and on and on and on. When I can tell you with absolute certainty that this is perfectly placed and it is beautifully placed. There's no error in it. There's no uh, reason why anybody should even come to that type of a conclusion unless they just want to make the Bible look bad from the beginning. Now, in today's sermon, it's not going to be very complicated like some of the sermons are, but it will be detailed, and you're going to get a million details, and if you collapse from them, I apologize, but I'm only going to preach on this one time in my life, and I want to make sure that I can get you every detail I can out of here, and you can go back and review it. If you want the notes, they're online. They're already published. They popped up a few minutes ago, and uh, it is a very important genealogy that is listed here, and there's no mistake, and there's no error in it. So let me read this to you from Exodus 6. Uh, verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their genealogy generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, and the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. Then the sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister's wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Aram, uh, Amram, I'm sorry, were 137. The sons of Ishar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, as wife. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Eliezer, the son, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiela's wife, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites according to their families. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Genealogies and records of ancestry can be important for a multitude of reasons. An example which I chew on probably more often than I should is listening to people whine about the past and how they have a right to reparations for one supposed offense or another. It's quite common among the black community today to lump all whites in as former slave owners. And people like our current president, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Eric Holder, and others of their ilk will use race in an attempt to divide, not unite, the American people. They have steeped the black community of our nation into believing that whites have only their worst intent in mind and that it has always been this way. It's all about race and subjugation to them. Such is not the case, and their version of history is riddled with misrepresentations and lies. 
Having a truthful account of one's ancestry, then, can be used to bring out the truth of a matter, which is necessary to quell the tide of such revolting nonsense. In the case of the Garrett family, my family, we have an unusual right, honor, and privilege to recognition from the African-American slave community. Our ancestry leads to my great-great-grandfather. His name is Thomas Garrett. He was born on August 21, 1789 in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. He is one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad. He has been called Delaware's greatest humanitarian and is credited with helping more than 2,700 slaves escape to freedom in a 40-year career as a station master. He was a white Quaker whose family hid runaway slaves in its Delaware County farmhouse. As a child, what he did, he credited an experience which he characterized as transcendental with directing his life's work toward aiding in the escaping of slaves. This incident in which a black servant employed by his family was kidnapped and nearly forced into slavery was a watershed moment in his own life. And because of it, he would devote his life to the abolitionist cause. He was a friend and a benefactor of the great Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman. She passed through his station many times, during which he frequently provided her with money and with shoes in order to continue her missions. Of note, he is personally noted as providing Tubman with money and the means for her own parents to escape from the South. In 1848, he and fellow abolitionists were tried and they were convicted for aiding in the escape of a family who had been slaves in Maryland. Both were given considerable fines, which nearly rendered them bankrupt. He almost gave up all of his fortune for the sake of helping these black slaves get away from the slavery that they were in. In his closing address during this trial, Garrett regaled those in the courtroom with a redoubled commitment to help runaway slaves. Eyewitness accounts detailed a particular contrition of one slaveholding juror from southern Delaware who actually rose to shake Garrett's hand and apologize at the close of his impassioned speech. Following the Civil War, he continued his work for minority groups in America. In 1870, when blacks were given the right to vote, he was carried on the shoulders of black supporters throughout the streets of Wilmington, and they hailed him, Our Moses. There was the Moses of Wilmington, and knowing his accomplishments is something that I both take joy in, and it is something that I wish that I could put right in the face of the race baiters of today. Our president personally disgusts me because of his one-sided, misguided, and skewed view of Christian history and of American history. All men, and I mean all men, are on an equal standing before God. And the terrible consequences we are paying because of this modern mindset of ignoring the deeds of those who worked to secure freedom for blacks can only result in greater animosity and in greater division. There is another Moses, the first Moses, who also had a genealogical record which is found in scripture to prove that he was of the same stock of those he was sent to lead out of their own bondage. God ensured this record was maintained and the placing of it in the Bible is absolutely perfect. Our text verse for today comes from Leviticus chapter 26. It's the 45th verse. But for their sake, I will remember the, co remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Yes, it is good to know our roots, but even if they've been lost through the ravages of time or carelessness, we can still trace who we are back to our one father, Noah, and from him back to our original father, Adam. So in the end, we are all really one blood and one people, divided by petty divisions which the Lord does not see as we do. He sees us in only one of two ways, either redeemed by Christ or a child of the devil. He would choose that you become his adopted son once again so that you can fellowship with him for all eternity. A portion of that great story of how this is possible is found in today's verses. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you, as always. The first is the generations of Levi. It's verses 14 through 19. Verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses. 
Suddenly, after the last 13 verses, there appears this genealogical listing which was preceded by a note from Moses declaring his inability to speak properly, and then a command by the Lord concerning the children of Israel and Pharaoh about their departure from Egypt. The exact words of verses 12 and 13 were, And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, with what seems sudden abruptness, the Bible turns to 14 verses of their names, family names, names of individuals. And then as soon as they end, they're going to be followed by two verses, which give a command for Moses and then a note from Moses declaring his inability to speak properly. What liberal scholars see as arbitrary and even ill-planned is actually forming a beautiful chiasm, which acknowledges the right of Moses and Aaron to the leadership of Israel. The chiasm is the second such chiasm in the chapter, and which together span the entire chapter, from verse 1 to 11, which we saw last week, and from verse 12 through 30, which we see here I've passed out to all of you now. It is absolutely perfect what God has done. So don't think that there's any error or any problem with what's in the Bible. These chiasms show us why God included the words the way he did and where he did. Despite the attacks of liberal theologians, there is harmony, there is purpose, and there is order for what is being given in these verses. The term for father's houses is Rashe Beit Avotam. It refers to the heads of the individual houses. This listing is given for quite a few reasons, as we will continue to see in the verses ahead. One of those reasons is to establish a direct line from Abraham to Moses and Aaron through Isaac and Jacob. This can be discerned when compared with other sets of genealogies which have already been presented in the Bible. A second reason is that God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 concerning his descendants. I probably quoted this promise more than any other portion of scripture in the sermons that I've done since that promise was made. I quote it again and again because it is so absolutely important. And what is included in here affects what Moses is doing right now. So here's what it says from Genesis 15. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, happening, and will serve them, happening, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. We're going to see that coming very soon. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions, coming soon to a sermon near, near you. Now, as for you, you shall go, for, go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Here's the portion that's relevant today. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This listing is given to show that the Lord's words were true. Jacob went to Egypt with his family, which included his son Levi and Levi's sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. This is recorded in Genesis chapter 46. In Egypt, Kohath had a son named Amram, and Amram had a son named Moses. Thus, Moses is the fourth generation from Jacob who went to Egypt. This listing is a proof of the fulfillment of covenant promise spoken to Abraham eons earlier. A third reason is that the specific age of Levi, Kohath, and Amram will be given in these verses. By knowing their ages, the approximate length of time which the Israelites dwelt in Egypt can be determined. This dating can then be checked against other dating and confirm that there are no missing genealogies in the Bible. In other words, the line goes directly from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Levi to Kohath to Amram, and then to Moses without any interim generations being left out. The line is complete and it is unbroken. Moses is the seventh from Abraham, from promise to deliverer. Now this might seem unneeded, but it is not. It proves the right of Moses and Aaron to lead and it also shuts up scholars who either negligently or willfully claim that the Bible has errors or omissions in it. And there are lots of people that do. Some scholars will say that this listing without missing generations is impossible because of the number of Levites who are recorded later in Exodus. That's a faulty conclusion based on a misunderstanding of who is included in those census numbers. There's nothing missing from this genealogy. The placing of this listing here is natural and it's appropriate because the Lord will now begin his decisive actions against Pharaoh. The time has reached its fullness and action is coming. 
in order to establish that Moses was qualified for assuming this responsibility, this listing is given right now. This type of specific recording is the same as for that of Jesus Christ. It is also somewhat of a picture of his record. Moses is to be Israel's prophet, and Aaron is to be their priest. Jesus' genealogy is likewise meticulously recorded to show that he is Israel's rightful prophet and priest. Verse 14 continues, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. These are the same names recorded in Genesis 46, verse 9, but with the additional note that Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. He has been rejected as a leader, and so he will be passed over. Verse 15, And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. This is the exact same record as that which was given in Genesis 46.10. Simeon has been rejected as leader, and so he will be passed over. Verse 16, These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. These are the same names recorded in Genesis 46, verse 11. But something new is given, the lifespan of Levi. If one understands the clues of how to interpret what is going on in the Bible, they can tell from this one addition that the house of Levi will now become a central figure in the narrative. A point that's worth remembering is that three people are recorded as living 137 years in the Bible. Ishmael, Levi, and Amram, the father of Moses and Aaron. Ishmael, if you saw that sermon, you know that he pictured the law during his life. And the families of Levi and Amram both encompass Aaron and Moses, the lawgiver and the law's priest. Another point of interest is that the term generations in this verse is the Hebrew word toledot. It can be spelled in one of four ways. The way that it's spelled for the generations of Ishmael and often for the family of Levi is unique. Unlike other genealogies throughout the Old Testament, it is lacking the letter Vav. That's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it indicates man. That's what the number indicates, all right? This is a hidden clue concerning the law, which is given for us to understand what the Bible teaches. The clue is that the law can never save anyone. Actually, the letter Vav doesn't indicate man. The number six does, okay? So what it is telling us is that relying on works merely separates us further from God. It doesn't bring us closer to God. As the family of Levi is the steward of the law, this unusual spelling of the word in Hebrew shows us this. This information on the letter Vav was explained in great detail in previous Genesis sermons and also in the final sermon from the book of Ruth. So if you want to understand that, go watch one of those sermons and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Seeing these hidden clues in scripture gives us a much greater understanding of how God deals with man and what man needs to do in order to be right with him. What is hidden in the Old Testament and all these veiled references and genealogies, it's all revealed explicitly in the New Testament. Here are Paul's words on that matter. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. All of that is contained in this genealogy. It's all hidden in there. And it's amazing how God has shown us these things just by a little bit of study. Verse 17, the sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi according to their families. Gershon was the firstborn of Levi, and so his family is listed first. Verse 18, and the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. Kohath is the second son of Levi, and so his family is listed next. However, like his father, his age at death is given. If we were to stop right here and pick up in the future, we could first say to ourselves, something important is going to come from the line of Kohath. Verse 19, the sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. Merari is the youngest of Levi, and so he is listed last. Verse 19 continues, these are the families of Levi according to their generations. Again, the spelling of the word Toledot right here is without any vav. The Bible is showing us a clue that the generations of the law will come to an end and they will be replaced with something greater, the dispensation of grace which is found in Jesus Christ. So many generations, name upon name, 
Why are they there in the Bible's pages? If they weren't there, wouldn't it be the same? Would it make any difference to scholars or sages? The answer is that they are there for a reason. Each name is important as God reveals to us things that have been and things that will also be in a season, things that point to the Lord Jesus. If we skip them or pass them by without a care, we will miss so much that we could know. In these lists, God is willing to share many hidden treasures that he desires to show. Our second thought is Aaron and Moses, Moses and Aaron, verses 20 through 27. Verse 20, now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister as wife. Amram is the father of Moses. For a wife, he married his own father's sister, Jochebed. She is a daughter of Levi and a sister of Kohath. At this time, such a marriage was common and it was accepted. As their father lived to be 133, he could have had Amram many years earlier and the two of them could have been the same age or Amram could have been even older than her. We can't know. Later under the law, such a marriage will be forbidden. This is found in Leviticus chapter 18. It says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is, a near, she is near of kin to your father. However, prior to the law, as we have seen repeatedly in such things, there were no prohibitions against them and there was nothing wrong in what occurred. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5 when he says, for until, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Can't hold offense against somebody if there's no law to hold offense against. Okay, so that's what we're being told there. Her name, Jacobed, or in Hebrew, Yaakoved, is the earliest known name which carries the abbreviated form of Yah, which is the abbreviation of Yahweh or Yehovah. Her name means either Lord of Glory or Glory of the Lord. What a fitting and appropriate time for such a name to come into the biblical account, and what a fitting family for it to be recorded. Her son, Moses, would literally be the one to first lead the united people of Israel to seeing the glory of the Lord in the most astonishing of ways. And as we're considering names, we shouldn't leave out Amram. His name means a people exalted. Looking at this union, then, we see a picture of what is coming. Israel, a people exalted, Amram, will be united to the Lord of glory, Jochebed. You see the picture of this being made there? That's why he includes these names and the details. Verse 20 continues, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. From this union between Amram and Jochebed will come Aaron, which means light bringer, and Moses, which means he who draws out. Thus we have another picture of what is coming in Jesus Christ. Through this exalted people, Israel, pictured by Amram, in their union to the Lord of glory, pictured by Jochebed, will come the true high priest who will bring light to his people, pictured by Aaron, and the true redeemer and prophet who will draw out a people from the world for himself, pictured by Moses. The names of this family show us a snapshot of what is coming all the way through redemptive history. Verse 20 continues, And the years of the life of Amram were 137. Again, the years of this line are given. And for a third and last time in the pages of scripture, a person will be noted as dying at 137 years of age. Ishmael, who pictured the, those who were under the law, Levi, whose name is used synonymously with the law, and Amram, from whom will come Israel's human lawgiver and the priest of that law. Verse 21, the sons of Ishar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Ishar is the second son of Kohath and Amram's brother. His family is listed showing the future heads of their houses. Korah will be the instigator of a most remarkable rebellion, which is recorded in number 16. Though his family line will continue and be notable, even for the writing of 11 Psalms, he himself will be remembered forever as one of the great losers of history in the recorded pages of the Bible. He's even mentioned in the New Testament in the book of Jude. Here's what it says about him. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Thus he is forever noted alongside two other troublemakers of history. Verse 22. And the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. The third son of Kohath, Hebron, is overlooked and the record goes directly to his last son, Uziel. Two of his sons will be remembered again in scripture as they are asked to carry from the camp the dead bodies of Aaron's two oldest sons. 
That's recorded in Leviticus chapter 10, where it says this. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. All these names are given in advance so that we can see something is coming in their names. Verse 23, Aaron took to himself Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, his wife. Aaron married a woman who is from the tribe of Judah. Both Aminadab, her father, and Nashon, her brother, are listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. The name Elisheba is the same name as Elizabeth, which is the wife of Zechariah, the mother of John the Baptist in the New Testament. It's just the Greek transliteration of it. Her name means oath of God. At the Exodus, her brother Nashon will be the leader of the tribe of Judah. In her marriage to Aaron, we see a uniting of the lines of the king and of the priest, both offices of the coming Christ. Once again, this is why these names are being given. Verse 23 continues, And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. These are the sons of Aaron who were born to Elisheba. The oldest two will die when they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. Thus, they will leave, this will leave Eliezer as the oldest son, and through him will continue the high priestly line of Israel when Aaron dies. It's interesting that this name, Elisheba or Elizabeth, is only given to these two women in the entire Bible. Together, they will have intimate contact with women named Miriam. The first became the sister-in-law of Miriam, Aaron's sister, and the second is a relative of Miriam or Mary the mother of Christ Jesus. And the Bible records the unusual deaths of each of their firstborn. Nadab died when he was burnt by fire before the Lord, and John the Baptist died by beheading. Verse 24, And the sons of Korah were Asur, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Even though Korah was destroyed when he rebelled against the Lord, the whole family was not destroyed with him. At least three of them continue to be mentioned in Scripture, even to the writing of several of the Psalms. Verse 25, Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel, his wife, and she bore him Phineas. The line of Eliezer is given to show where the high priestly line was heading. When Nadab and Abihu die, the line will continue through Eliezer and thus to his son Phineas. The Bible is being very, very specific in advance to show us hints of what is coming in the future. By simply reading genealogies, one can divine clues as to the importance of individuals before their actions are ever mentioned. Such is the case with Phineas, who will become a great name in Israel's history. So great, in fact, that this is recorded about him in the book of Numbers. Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Wouldn't it be nice if all of us were so noted in our own lives for the zeal of the Lord like this guy? The name Putiel isn't mentioned anywhere else, and it's believed to be possibly of Egyptian origin. The same is true with the name Phineas. If this is so, and I think it is, then a son who partly comes from the line of Ham, the wayward son of Noah, figures predominantly in the high priestly line of Israel. God is no respecter of persons, and many notable figures of the Bible come from what may seem unsavory or even unclean lines of people. In the end, we are all one race of people. We're all human beings. In Christ, every curse is lifted, and all are on an equal playing field. If you harbor racial or cultural prejudices against another, you're not looking at those people as God does, so you need to get beyond those things. Verse 25 continues. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites according to their families. This verse sums up the entire listing of names which went from verse 26 through verse 25. The introduction has been carefully placed here to show us this most important family before they begin their awesome work for the Lord. It is work which would continue until the time of Christ and only be annulled in his establishment of the new covenant. Verse 26, these are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. With the matter of the genealogies established and properly recorded and in preparation for what lies ahead, this verse is given. 
The words are emphatic. It is these Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord has spoken. And so as quickly as the genealogical record appeared, it is quickly ended. And the narrative commences where it left off. This list has been no unexplainable insertion, but rather a carefully placed listing intended to validate the offices of Aaron and Moses. And as the narrative recommences in this quote from the Lord, something new is given. It says, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. The word for armies here is tzibotam. It's a plural of the word sabah, which means war or to train, army, struggle, something to do with that type of notion there. This is the first time in the Bible the word is used when speaking of the people of Israel as a unified force capable of mustering troops. Israel won't just leave Egypt as a ragged bunch of people like we see in the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Rather, they're going as, out as a well-organized group of people, each in ranks, and each rank is exhibiting dignity and power because of the Lord, their leader. Verse 27, these are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. What was commanded is what was spoken to Pharaoh. Though the occurrence is still future in the overall narrative, it is past at the time of the recording of the genealogy, as all of the record of Exodus is. They're all recorded after the events happened. Moses is looking back now to show that those who were selected were those who performed. And those who performed were qualified to do so as testified to by their well-documented heritage. And more than just bring the children of Israel out, they brought them out from under Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The entire title, including the words king of Egypt, are given as a contrast to the previous word armies. The power of the king was ineffective against the hosts of Israel when led by the Lord of Israel. Now, here's a question. Is that only speculation by me to make the sermon a little bit longer, or is it something that we can be sure of? It is, in fact, something that we can be absolutely sure of. After verse 29 of this chapter, the title King of Egypt won't be used again until Exodus 14, verse 5, after the Israelites have departed from the land. And the entire title, Pharaoh, King of Egypt, won't be used until verse 14, 8, when the fool decides to pursue Israel and try to recapture them. However, in the intervening verses from Exodus 6.29 until Exodus 14, verse 5, the term Pharaoh will be used 72 times without the additional title King of Egypt. How do I know? I sat down and I counted every single one of them. It is during these verses that the Lord gives this stubborn individual a marvelous display of his power and of his majesty, showing him who the true king is. Verse 27 continues, these are the same Moses and Aaron. Again, the names are emphatically stated in the Hebrew. It is these two who were called and who were obedient to the call. And thus they are noted once again. However, this time the order is reversed. In the previous verse, it said Aaron and Moses in order to show that Aaron was the firstborn. Now in this verse, Moses is placed first. As so often happens in the Bible, the second replaces the first in position of preeminence. It is a picture of Jesus Christ who is given preeminence over Adam. This concept is explained in detail by the hand of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So what you should do today is make that your daily Bible reading. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a great, great chapter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we're going to be celebrating soon. And it will also show you how the second replaces the first. So far, we've already seen this pattern occur many, many times just in the book of Exodus. I'm sorry, Genesis, and then in the book of Exodus. It includes Abel's offering, which was accepted over Cain's offering. We had Shem placed over Japheth. We had Abraham placed over his older brother Haran. We had Isaac placed above Ishmael. Jacob before Esau. Jacob's second wife, who was Rachel, was placed above Jacob's first wife, Leah. Perez was placed above Zerah. Ephraim was placed above Manasseh. And on and on and on this happens. God is giving us these hints to think on and to understand what he is doing and why. If every name recorded was important to you, and then you handed them along for us to see, then you must think we're pretty important too. Why else would you keep them so carefully? The details are all a part of a great plan. They record special events and names in a tapestry, all intended to detail the redemption of man. And it's there for us if we will open our eyes to see. 
It all makes sense when we see how much you love us and wrote each and every word to reveal Jesus. Our third thought today is, I can do all things, verses 28 through 30. Verse 28, and it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. These words take us right back to the final verses of chapter 5, and which led into this chapter that we're looking at right now. There, after being rejected by Pharaoh, this was recorded, verse 22 of uh, chapter 5. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. But in this verse, it now says that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. This wasn't just a call from the bush in Sinai where the Lord reigned. Rather, he made his presence known in Egypt as well. By speaking to Moses in this way in Egypt, he was granting him a sort of divine dominion, namely a theocratic dominion over Pharaoh. On the same day and in the land of Egypt, the Lord spoke and gave his instructions as Moses now remembers for us. Verse 29, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. This was the general thought given back in verse 10. After Moses' words to the Lord, the Lord spent the next nine verses explaining his intentions and the reasons for them. These reasons extended all the way back to the time of Abraham and the covenant with him. They gave a concise review of Israel's state until that time. And then in verse 10, he repeated his commission to Moses to do as he was instructed. But Moses had an excuse which he hoped would absolve him of the tasks which lay ahead, which is included in our final verse of today, verse 30. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? This is not a newly spoken repeat of these words. Rather, they are a reiteration of what Moses spoke in verse 12. In other words, it may seem that Moses is saying the same thing again to the Lord that he said back in verse 12, but that is not the case. Rather, Moses is re-recording after the insertion of the genealogy, which confirmed him and Aaron in their leadership positions, that he had once said these words to the Lord. That is why the previous verses said the names of Moses and Aaron emphatically and noted their accomplishments in the past tense. The Lord chose someone who felt he was wholly unqualified for the task set before him, and yet the Lord demonstrated that he was perfectly qualified because of this genealogy. He was selected even from eons before to accomplish the task which was known but to God and to God alone when he made the promise to Moses' long-dead forefather, Abraham. Moses' recording of this account for the second time is to show us the truth, which is recorded in the book of Zechariah, which says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's a concept which is restated in the New Testament, as Paul says to the people at Philippi. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The entire sixth chapter of Exodus has been carefully laid out into these two separate chiasms to show us these and so many other truths. Both of these chiasms can be found on my wonderful one website if you ever want to go there, along with all the other chiasms that I found. And anytime you want, you can go there and you can look at those and you can review them and you can think on them. And as you do, you'll more clearly see why God does the things he does and how God works. Everything has purpose and everything Thing is directed to help us apply these same truths to our own lives. Now let's look at this chapter with these two chiasms, and let's imagine our own lives being recorded in this way. If every single thing that you did was carefully recorded to be displayed before all people someday, what would be the defining moment of your life? What would be the one thing that all other things in your life pivoted on? If you were to give any other answer than I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, your life would ultimately be a waste. For all the money that we make, we can't take a dollar of it with us. For all the hard work we did, it will be forgotten. If you worked cutting down trees, guess what? More trees are going to grow up and replace them. If you sold insurance, there are going to be new policies written over the policies that you wrote. If you were a tugboat captain, well, guess what? The tugboat is either going to be sunk or scrapped someday. Everything has a season, and every season ends. 
Without the hope of Jesus Christ, it is all merely vapor on a cold morning which disappears from sight. But with the hope of Christ, there is an eternal walk in God's garden of delight. It is the only thing that gives our years and all of our toils any meaning or any purpose at all. If you have never called out to Jesus Christ to simply forgive you of your sins and to redeem you from this fallen world of sin and death, please let me tell you how you can do it today. And I hope that if you've never done it, you will pay attention because I got to tell you what, I don't think there's much time left in this world before God's judgment comes. The Bible says that there is sin in the world and it affects every single person on earth. We inherited it from our father and we commit more sins in our own life. And that sin separates us from an infinitely holy God. And there is no way we can bridge that gap. We're finite and we're going that way in time and he is outside of time. The gap is infinite. But Jesus Christ stepped out of the infinite realm and he united with flesh in our finite realm. And therefore, he is without sin because God is his father and he is a human in the stream of time. Born without sin, if he can just live without sin until the day he gives his life up on the cross, then he will prevail over sin. And that's what the Gospels record, is that he in fact did that. And then he gave his life up voluntarily as an offering for our sin. Now he died, and the wages of sin is death. So either he sinned and he remained in the grave, or he came out of the grave. But if there is sin involved in his death and it's not his sin, guess what? That means that it is somebody else's sin. And that's what Paul tells us. Our sin is nailed to his cross. And he proved it because he did come out of the grave. And when he came out of the grave, it showed that he lived sinlessly, he died sinlessly, and that our sin, which was nailed to the cross because of his work, is gone forever. The surest thing in the world. I'm going through the 1 Corinthians 15 uh, passages right now in my daily devotionals, and I can tell you with all certainty, the surest thing on the face of this planet is that you will come out of that grave if you are in Jesus Christ. And the absolute surest thing in the world is that you will not if you are not in Jesus Christ. That's all there is to it. You will not be granted eternal life without him. That is what the Bible teaches, and I am fully convinced of that. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because he did it for you. Okay? Our closing verse today is from Isaiah 40. It's verses 6 through 8. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Think of the movie star when you were young that was beautiful, lovely. And you looked at her and you said, what a beautiful woman. And now she's probably in the grave by now. Or the big, handsome, hulking Arnold Schwarzenegger. And now he's falling to pieces. All flesh is grass and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Exodus 7, 1 through 7 is our sermon next week. It's entitled Notable Obedience. Remember, he said, hey, I can't do this job. And then we're given the genealogy to show you can do this job. And then at the end, he repeats, this is what I had said like a fool. He's going to start being obedient next week. That'll be our 18th Exodus sermon. Less than a year, less than one year after being hailed as the Moses of Wilmington by the black community there, Thomas Garrett died on January 25th of 1871. His funeral, attended by many of the black residents of the city, featured a procession of Garrett's coffin borne from shoulder to shoulder all the way up Quaker Hill. He now awaits his final call for judgment of deeds done while in the body. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? I have a poem for you today based on these verses, and if you know these genealogies, they don't make easy poems, but we're going to try it, okay? This is called The Family of Moses and Aaron. These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, not mentioned are their spouses. These are the families of Reuben, as the Bible does tell. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, and Zohar. And Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon, of which you are now familiar. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, living under the sun. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimei, according to each family. 
And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133, as the story does tell. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi, making alliterations. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, his wife. And Aaron and Moses to him she bred. And 137 years were the years of Amram's life. And the sons of Ishar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elisheba, daughter of Amminadab, sister of Nashana's wife. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, a very productive lady in her life. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites for sure. They were guided by Korah's staff. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel, his wife, and she bore him Phineas, who was a notable figure during his life. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites according to their family, along with a few of their spouses. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. This is what the Lord to Moses did tell. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron, without a doubt. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, the land that the Lord spoke to Moses and did say, I am the Lord, as you understand. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. It's true. And how shall Pharaoh heed me and your word? Thus ends chapter 6 of Exodus, and we can see in it perfect order and harmony. If we research it well, it will speak to us of the hidden mysteries which reveal God's glory. So it is with every detail of God's word. It will teach us of the wonders of his plan in sending to us Jesus the Lord who came to redeem fallen man. The Bible does this so that we will seek after God and search for him carefully in each detail. So let's do it for as long as on this earth we trod, until at last we hit that heavenly trail. Yes, thank you, Lord, for this precious book. Help us to study it well and to each day take a look. There in its pages are wonders for us, such beautiful wonders concerning our precious Lord, Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, what seems so tedious and so rote and boring and mundane isn't, is it? It's so wonderful. You've put these things in here and you've given us all of these details and the only thing boring about it is what we make of it. Your word is so exciting. It is so precious. It is so wonderful. And it's just filled with joy. It's filled with hope. It's filled with knowledge and wisdom and splendor. We thank you for it. And we thank you that it all, all tells us about Jesus, the one who came to do what we could never do for ourselves. How great you are, O oh God, to send us your son, Jesus, and to do the things that he did for people like us. Forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of our iniquities, purify our hearts, lead us forth from this place, willing and eager to tell others about Jesus, just to tell others about Jesus before it's too late. Lord, help us to be wise with our time. Help us to be discerning and to live our days aright in your presence. Oh, we love you. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all you've done. We glorify you and we praise you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We get the instructions for this Lord's Supper from the Bible. And it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there, from the hand of Paul, he writes these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks over this bread. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed it as well. He would have said this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu lam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. All who are saved by the blood of Christ, please come forward. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to come and share in the Lord's table week by week in your presence and to remember the cross of Jesus Christ until the day he comes again for us. Thank you for the freedom we have from our sins. Thank you for the sure hope of the resurrection and the promise of eternal life in your presence. Whatever that means, I sure am looking forward to it, and may it be soon. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Amen.